Hello, Podnutsians. Welcome to The Makers, Episode 6. This is the podcast all about building, breaking, and learning. I am the host, Door to Door Geek from Podnuts.com. If you want to know more, just go to Podnuts.com, P-O-D-N-U-T-Z.com. We're mostly an ad-free network uh, supported by listeners and fine companies like Instant House Call and Re and Re um, Repair Tech. If you want to know more about them? Just go to Podnuts.com. Click their links. Uh, tonight, I am joined with uh, Brett. How's everything going, man? Going pretty good. Uh, built a couple things. Broke a couple things. Built a uh, um, 3D printed structure for a nest cartridge to put a raspberry pi zero in it and uh make it so it becomes basically a console so oh, that okay. was fun nest cartridge i thought you said nest cartridge but no the classic nintendo enter the classic nintendo entertainment system cartridge size shape yeah it's actually i used an original cartridge um sesame street of all things um and uh turned it into a uh, actual emulation station, and it works great. So how many uh, ports do you have for controllers on the front of that? Three, along with a uh, um, wireless option, if I put a Raspberry Pi W in it. I'm sorry, the correct answer was three, ah, ah, ah. But I digress. Uh, That sounds actually very awesome. I'm going to kindly beg you to share some pictures of that in at least the uh, Voxer chat so I can share them out on our glorious and illustrious Instagram feed where we do not post a single picture of food yet. No problem. I'll uh, be glad to share. Okay. uh, Also joined this week by Aaron from Oregon. How's everything going, man? Uh, Really good. Um, not much breaking or not much breaking. Uh, the only thing I built, uh, this week was a couple fidget spinners for, um, a friend of my wife's, her daughter did not believe that my 3d printer could make fidget spinners. So we had to prove her wrong. And since I had that, uh, Zealtech pink that I thought was supposed to be translucent red, I had plenty of filament for her. Um, and then learning, um, I'm waiting for uh, a 3D printer to show up at my work, so I get to build that. So I guess that's learning. Uh, that'll be a CR10 S4. So excited about that. That'll hopefully show up Monday. And the S4, correct me if I'm wrong, that's 400 by 400 by 400 millimeters? Yes, that is correct. Oh, doggy, that's that biggie. Um, second question, the fidget spinner stuff, Have now did you choose to use real bearings or did you choose to print them no i've never i tried printing uh the bearing before i've never had good luck um especially with a a 608 bearing which is your standard um fidget spinner bearing i've never had good luck with that so i just purchase some you know cheap bearings and uh you take off the caps uh you soak them in you know alcohol or whatever to just clean everything every bit of grease off of them and you just run them bare bones and they work pretty good oh okay well i didn't know that last part because my son designed the fidget spinner for his cousin because his cousin also couldn't believe that we could do that so he designed one very basic design and i had leftover bearings from when i thought i could ride a skateboard again so i bought one and i also bought uh, better bearings for it. So we took the old bearings out, put those bearings in. So I literally had 
eight bearings sitting in a box for a couple of years there. So I told him he could use them and we didn't do any kind of bathing or soaking to them. So the, the, the spinner spun, I'm not going to say it spun fantastic, but it spun good enough to at least satisfy him. But now I see we could have done better. Yeah. You just, uh, you just pop the caps off of them and, um, just spray as much as uh, if it's got grease packed in, like most of the actual skateboard bearings, um, you just spray them with water. Honestly, you just spray it out with water and then uh, high pressure water. And then you soak them in the easiest because everybody has it is uh, rubbing alcohol and take a little uh, bristle brush or a old toothbrush and just clean them out really good. And then pull them out, let them dry, and uh, you'll get a lot more uh, free play out of them. Very cool, very cool. So I I already learned something. Uh, we're also joined by Chad in North Dakota. How's everything going, man? Real good, real good now. Um, I thought I broke a bunch of stuff, but um, well, I was afraid I was going to when I tore apart my MPCNC. I upgraded that and stuff so learned a lot of stuff we'll talk about that later i think and yeah it's been an interesting busy week had a tree fall down in my backyard real good week well i was gonna say the tree that fell down could have been immensely worse i i don't want to say you got off easy but i think you got off with as little horrible impaction as possible yeah it fell on the power line and whatnot but it didn't break the power line so i got lucky there uh the power company came out and cut it off the line and so i've been out there cleaning it up all week too so fun 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 gotcha gotcha uh we're also joined this week by rich in hughes southern compound compound command something how's everything going man it's the hcsc as opposed to the hcnc uh everything's good yeah hughes compound southern command uh <laughs> hughes compound northern command so, uh, yeah, if I was smart, I'd be, you know, hanging out in the Hamptons at the Hughes Compound Northern Command, but I'm not. Uh, well, we all can't do that. But um, this week, I know you're really busy. Work is something that constantly uh, um, uh, uh, puts its way onto our hobbies and families, the other thing. But did you find any time this week to do anything interesting? Yeah, you know, I, I printed a bunch of stuff. And I, I came up with something today in the midst of the frenzy of contract signing, negotiation, etc. with work. Um, and, you know, it kind of fits into my ecosystem of the ball clamps, double ball clamps and stuff like that. And I'm going to be going to an air show and I want to do some video. And I had a unselfie stick that I mount my phone and a microphone to to do a, like live streaming and interviews with. And I grabbed a selfie stick and modified some of the components I've been using in my ecosystem. So if you want to look at stuff I've done, it's on Thingiverse and Thingiverse Flying Rich. And so you can see a bunch of things that I've done. And they all kind of work together. And uh, so I, I did that just today. I printed a whole lot of black Scotch-Brite. Uh, so last week I mentioned firmware and updating firmware and auto bed leveling. I need that desperately because it will prevent the black scotch bright. What is that? Well, it, in other words, when, when a print goes bad, um, like I was printing something, basically it's like a bicycle grip, and I guess it got knocked over during the print. And all of a sudden, I wake up the next morning. You know, that was the, I had a bed of a number of components being printed. And then 
you know, I, I think it was, you know what? I think it was, we were podcasting. We were doing this podcast last week and that was printing. And I, about midnight, I walked away from the computer, went to bed. It was printing fine. There must've been some sort of collision. And I come out the next morning and there is bigger than a fist sized, you know, ball of like black spaghetti or black scotch bright because the printer was just extruding in air and there's just a big freaking mess. And, and the bad part about that is I'm out of filament and I ordered new filament and they shipped me three millimeter filament instead of 1.75. And that's like the third or fourth time that happened. Dude, that's not good. Why do you still order from them again? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you why I still order from them is because how much do you, for the zeal tech, do you have to order 10 rolls to get free shipping? No, $75 worth. Yeah. yeah 75. It, if I had $75, I'd order from zeal tech. Well, and how much is shipping on one roll? I want to say it's only like three dollars for one roll. Seven fifty, and that gets you up to three rolls delivered. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Once start, once the checks start coming in, I'll order some stuff. Isn't Got that it. still cheaper than uh, what you buy? Uh, it's like twenty bucks on Amazon for uh, a spool. Right, but I mean, you're four spools in, and two of them have been usable. Yeah, yeah, but I send it back for free. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, we're also joined by Jonas. I'm not sure Jonas is available. Are you there, man? Yeah, I should be here. Woohoo! So how's everything going, man? Going pretty good. Getting some stuff done. Messing up some prints, it looks like. Gotcha, gotcha. Did you do anything? Uh, well, you, you went a little hardware busy this week, haven't you? Um, Not so much. I just made like a big giant trash can out of a single line of filament using the vase method. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. We'll get into that, I think, a little bit later. Um, We're also joined by Liam. How's everything going, man? Ah, Things are the same. Not much has changed. I've uh, I've done very little printing this week. I worked on my my game board, and that's about it. Quit typing there, Liam. Um. Uh, you've been working on your game board? Designed a um, a board for ISO Path by oh, Pocket82, Pocket83, YouTube guy. I've uh, just been printing it out. So put that together and play with the kid. Looks like it'll be fun. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and if anyone wants to look this up on Google, we'll, we'll, we'll try to have a link in the notes, but it's ISO, ISO, dash path. ISO path, and it's a game that he basically invented it borrows a lot of techniques and things from other types of board games like Chinese checkers and checkers and things like that, which now that I think about it, saying Chinese checkers is probably racist. It's, I don't know what to call it. Um, it seems like a very interesting game. I had my son design one of his boards from scratch. He hasn't printed it yet, but I like the idea just because it might take some of his YouTube time away and actually make him interact with people. People are the worst. Don't make Good luck that. with that. Well, my logic is... He's going to have to learn with them to deal with them sooner or later. It's called working for a living, unless he's like a independently wealthy kind of guy, which I, I, I love my son, but I have realistic expectations for him. I mean, somebody's got to take over your podcast empire, right? I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it that long. No, he will. Yeah, sure. Um, we also have a new guy here. Uh James, uh, really quick, can I get a bio from you, the stuff you would like to share, where you're from, where you're at, what you've done, what kind of uh, printing, CNCing, making stuff do you have? 
All right, um, James, I'm a manufacturing and a design engineer. I'm originally from Scotland, been in the States since I was a little kid, though. I live in Worcester, Massachusetts currently. Um, I'm a freelancer. I'm currently building a CNC router. I'm a machinist. I've got a little machine shop uh, in a maker space here in Worcester. And I mostly work on gaming computers and stuff like that for a company called Singularity Computers. Uh, but yeah, um, kind of looking forward to seeing how this goes. Never done any podcasting, so bear with me. Well, first off, state to the people at home. So this guy is legit. It isn't like me. A week or two ago, he decided to buy something and start playing with it. He's up to his neck in it, which I will say, we have people like me who are the beginner level. Then we have people like Chad and now James who are true like professional grade. We have guys like Brett who's beginning to be prepped pro like raid we have uh guys like jonas who's been in it to it for years doing this similar kind of stuff so i really do like having you on this kind of show it really does spread the uh knowledge around um really quick can i ask like what's your with the 3d printing and i'm guessing the cnc side of it what's your favorite designing tool what's your favorite slicing tool and what's your favorite piece of hardware you use to create Okay, my favorite piece of hardware isn't a 3D printer. I've got a Fidel 4020 CNC mill. That's probably my favorite. Uh, they're a dead simple mill. They're easy to work on. They're easy to keep running. Um, they're they're good mills. Um, my favorite 3D printer, honestly, it doesn't do the best quality prints, but it's all open source, and you can mod the heck out of it. Uh, I've got a Robo 3D in my garage. Uh, I really like it. It's got an 8 by 10 by 9 I think, build volume. Um and the, the surface finish isn't as good as some of the newer printers, but uh, like I said, they're open source and you can just mod the heck out of them. Uh, my favorite design tool, if I have to pick one, I use a lot of different ones, but if I had to pick one, probably be Fusion 360. Um, just because it's it's pretty easy to pick up, but it's still got a lot of the advanced tools. Uh, you know, so you, you know somebody like me can actually make a living using it. Um, my favorite slicer, uh, unfortunately, is when you got to pay to get is Simplify 3D. Uh, I've used Cura, I've used all the free ones, and Simplify 3D, I think you get two licenses. They sell them in pairs for some reason for uh, 150 bucks, somewhere around there, and it's well worth it. Um, very good slicer, a lot of options and everything, like all the customization you could want. Um, I more or less use that exclusively now. Um, as much as I like Fusion, I'm not that fond of Autodesk's slicer offerings. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, the first thing that I really do like is the fact that the exact same, what I'll say, professional-grade tools that you use are accessible to everybody else to use. I'm sure I'm going to buy Simplify sooner or later. Uh, Fusion 360 just launched, I believe, a, I believe it's a closed beta on their app because right now it's desktop only for i believe windows and mac and they're releasing a beta into their new next generation web-based designer and to be honest i'm giddy uh yeah that's that's right that's i think slated for a month or two from now they're supposed that they're always a little bit late but that's what they're saying is a month or two from now they're going to be releasing that oh i i I don't care if they're five months late, as long as they come out with it. At the same token, I'm sure it's going to be a tool that I'm going to not intuitively be able to click in and do stuff. But at the same token, everybody I've heard 
who has any knowledge with these kinds of tasks say 360 is the easiest to get things done in? Uh, ab absolutely, absolutely. Um, I used to do a lot of CAD training, uh, SolidWorks, uh, SolidWorks plugins, Rhino, uh, Fusion 360. I I've probably used six or seven different CAD platforms throughout my career. And uh, I never thought anybody pry me off SolidWorks, but um, like I said, I work in a makerspace and I can train somebody to do the basics in Fusion in you know, 20 minutes where SolidWorks, it's three, four days just to get them halfway competent making their first part. Very cool, very cool. I believe we've mentioned makerspace in the past, but now this is for anybody in the chat. If anybody wants to give a layman's definition of what a uh, makerspace is, trying to figure uh, out how to, uh, I've been working on a uh, an involvement with a fairplex in Pomona. They want to do a makerspace, and I've been working on uh, trying to basically try to head the operation. Um, I have a uh, a meeting pretty soon with a couple of the higher ups, so I'll have to uh, pick your brain, James, about some makerspace stuff. I'm really excited about it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can put you in touch with the guys that run it. I mean, I help them out and stuff, but it's not really my, uh, my baby. Um, but yeah, definitely. Uh, they, uh, they can put you in touch with all the, you know, there's tons of like grant money and stuff like that available for people wanting to bring that sort of thing to the community too. So yeah, uh, after this, we'll, we can talk. Um, for anybody out there who doesn't know, a makerspace is kind of like a gym membership, um, but instead of you know exercise equipment, you've got you know 3D printers, uh, CNC equipment, you know tools or whatever. Uh, you go in there, you pay a monthly membership generally, and you get access to all of it. So to me, I would say it's a like a gym m membership, except it probably doesn't completely suck. Exactly. Yeah, I would never actually go to a gym. <laughs> Like, if you could see me, you'd go, yeah, that guy doesn't go to the gym. Yeah, I might go for their shakes if they're tasty, but that's about it. Very cool, very cool. Um, Well, James, first, first publicly, I got to say, thank you for the support you've given PodNuts throughout the years, because you are the guy, you are one of the guys who has been sending me off and on emails literally for years. Uh, the first thing I'll go into me with the building, breaking, learning is you sent me what I can only describe as a glorious designed case for i believe what adafruit calls a raspberry pi pocket laptop yep that's right i built that one with my daughter and um replaced the little screen with a podnuts logo or the little uh, like grill screen for the speaker with a podnuts logo um and uh, intended i've got one sitting here printed i meant to mail you for the past year but um bad at that so <laughs> i was glad when you got a 3d printer i could just send you the file so what you're saying is we might be brothers because I'm also horrible at shipping. Oh, I'm awful, which is a shame because, I mean, the company that, you know, pays my bills, that's kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm responsible for all the North American shipping. <laughs> and I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. Wow. Okay, because so, I'm going to look at building it. But one of my prerequisites for building it is I don't want to use a Raspberry Pi 3. I want to use a different board, um, either something like a uh, Odroid C2 or maybe the new Rock 64 board, which is a very, very similar sized microcomputer, but uh, uh, immensely more powerful. We'll have to see. Oh, yeah. Um, if I can get the layout, I mean, I can CAD one up probably pretty quickly. 
That shouldn't, I mean, that's actually one nice thing about Fusion is that would be pretty easy to modify um, to, you know, accommodate different size boards and, you know, add screw bosses and stuff like that. You know, a lot easier than a lot of CAD platforms uh, to modify that one. But uh, yeah, if anybody uh, has any questions about that, you know, shoot me a message. I'll help you out. Gotcha, gotcha. I don't believe the board is actually publicly available for purchase yet. Pre-order ships July 31st is what it says, 2017. It looks to be the exact same form factor as the Raspberry, as the Raspberry Pi. Of course, some of the ports might be different. So I don't think it really would require much tweaking, if any. Yeah, mainly, uh, usually if the layout's the same, it's the ports and the heights of the um, components that will affect the design. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, the other part of it is I will say the printer, my printer has been unusually quiet, and that's because I will also cut very honest with you guys. My son's been away with his grandfather, my father-in-law, on a camping trip, and when he's not here, I'm used to not having access to the printer, so I'm not used to having free access to it. So I haven't printed. The printer's been quieter in the last 48 hours than it's probably been in the last week and a half, two weeks kind of thing. Um, but um, I, I do have stuff planned. I did print. One of the things I did print was the iris box, which was uh, a link I got from Chad initially, which is a very cool designed all printed at one time enclosure little case and, and we did it at a smaller size just so it'd be done quicker and so my son could see how it worked um he is utterly fascinated and i and i i love it but to transition to our first topic in an unusually unorthodox fashion um he's been using tinkercad i've been trying to get him to as i put it elevate to another tool he's been a little bit hesitant to do it only because he's now finding a little bit of uh, being comfortable in Tinkercad. So I think I'm going to have to learn how to find him the right tutorials to show him how to do some of the basics in more advanced tools. And the first topic that Liam wants to talk about is uh, using online um, online training tools. Um, what kind of stuff did you want to talk about, Liam? Well, not so much online training tools as learning whatever tool you decide you need to learn. The best way to learn something well, at least for me anyways, was to design something I didn't really care about and didn't want to do. Um, I, I belong to a fight company for the, you know, the medieval full, full contact combat thing that I've been doing since the 90s. And they have this uh, logo that I'm just not a fan of at all. I hate it. But I wanted to get it 3D printed for them. So I took and brought their existing picture in, which was just super low res and horrible. And uh, slowly learned how to use Fusion 360. That's that's where I learned most of my Fusion 360 was putting that thing together. Um, so if you can find something that you, I, I guess you, I mean, I guess you have to want to design it on some level or want to learn to use the tool, but just do something you have to get done because you have to, not because you want to, to really push you to learn them tools. Um, for instance, maybe uh, maybe somebody gets in your firewall and blocks Tinkercad, and suddenly he has to learn something new. That's actually a really good idea. I'm not sure if I'm that evil yet, but I, it, 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 it very well could happen. Um, I will say he has a passion. I tell you now, he has a passion to wanting to design things, but I'm going to poke Chad 
and say, but why? Why would you want to design anything when you can just go on websites like Thingiverse and just download and print away? <laughs> yeah, that's been my bane of my existence this week is uh, Thingiverse things. Yeah. Um, I found that a lot of times it's just easier to design it for your case situation rather than take especially if it's something that has to fit something else like if it's I'm, i've got my mpcnc if it's something that the components have to fit together it's almost just better to do it yourself than to take something off a of thing because they're making it for their machine and who knows what if they don't put in the descriptions oh i ended up having to grind off this little part or whatever they don't tell you well you end up messing around with it for hours gotcha and to me i'll say really quick it's a kind of thing an ounce of an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure kind of example thing all you have to do is sit down and learn a little bit of it and what you'll find out is the 20 30 40 two hours five hours whatever trying to search these sites finding that exact one thing that you're looking for if you took the time to learn the tool, it would be much quicker to just create it on your own is, is the way I take it. Oh, definitely. I wasted, well, in total, six hours of printing and the filament and the frustration because, you know, somebody designed something, put it up there, and it didn't work in my case, you know. I've had a, a couple things that I've downloaded and printed and then stopped after the second layer just to take them off and measure them to verify because maybe the info didn't look right or I didn't think it was going to um, print out properly. Um, that's kind of a, a I guess, a, a cheat or a hack or a workaround. Yeah, let's call it a hack. That's good for all the, the clickbaiting. Where were you when I did this stuff? I didn't even think about that until I made my second part that didn't work. <laughs> Plus, if you design it yourself, you can alter it a lot more easily. Like downloading an STL file, it's almost impossible to go in and like edit it and change it and move holes around and stuff. Where, you know, if you've got the original CAD model, you can usually do that much, much, much easier. Ding, ding, ding. That's what I hate about STLs. It gives me the false impression if I download it, then I can tweak it. No, no. 99% of the time, it's either I'm inept on the tool or it's designed in such a way that whenever I try to edit anything, I just completely destroy it. Yeah, I've tried myself uh, many a times at that going, oh, I can download this and just change this a little bit. Yeah, no, that was a big waste of two or three hours. Well, that's the biggest problem with the STL platform and trying to use like Fusion 360 is STLs are all triangular based, straight line stuff. And whereas in AutoCAD or Fusion 360, it's an actual solid, you know, there's curves, there's actual curves in it, you know. Right. Well, and to be honest, that was a question I forgot to ask James about the email. When he sent me the files for that pocket laptop, there was more than just STLs. And then Liam referenced and said he actually sent, I believe it was called the project files. Yeah, I sent you the Fusion 360, the FD3 file. So you can kind of uh, see it uh, in Fusion instead of it being a bunch of triangles, you know, your flat surfaces are actually flat surfaces stuff like that so you can edit it uh, a little more easily but um actually fusions just uh come out with some tools that make editing stls a lot easier um 
you can uh, isolate groups of the triangles and you know call them all like a selection set. Uh, so you can like chop your STL file up. Like say you've got like a flat panel with some holes in it. You know you can divide the surfaces that are the holes from the flat surfaces. And then it's not too bad to go in and model cylinders for the holes and all that kind of stuff and edit it. So, yeah, it's getting better. But, I mean, yeah, STLs are, are, are bad. Uh, I mean, there's a whole branch of CAD called retopology just for making STLs, you know, usable CAD and stuff like that. I used to do a lot of that. Um, you know, moving a hole in something, take me 30 seconds in a normal CAD model in an STL, it's going to take me half a day. It's it's just it's it's not really meant for that sort of thing. It's it's meant for the the minimum load on the hardware. You know, reading that file. Basically, it's meant for a very 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 low power computer to be able to read that and turn that into machine commands. You know, with an absolute minimum of processing or thought. You know, it's not really meant for human beings to look at and edit. All right, I'm going to make you guys all scream. I download a bunch of stuff on Tinker. I'm sorry, on uh, Thingiverse, and then edit it in Tinkercad, and then print it. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that that works great um, in a lot of cases, especially if you're just doing things that need to connect together but don't have to have precision between the two parts. Hey, wait, so, like, wait, have you seen the upsquared case? I did that all in Tinkercad. No, no. I'm, so, I mean, yeah that's going to be much easier to design where things are square and you can easily measure versus some people build the golden gate bridge out of matchsticks, but (laughs) you're right. You're right. And I'll tell you what I do regret door doors nailed it because I, I don't know if you guys, anybody's old, old as I am here, which is dirt. But when WordStar 2000 came out, I'm like, no, 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 I, I want the old WordStar, not the WordStar 2000, because I memorized all the keys and, you know, I didn't need the key overlay for the keyboard to learn. And so now I wish I never learned Tinkercad because I'm like, oh, I know how to do that in Tinkercad. If I learned on Fusion 360, it might have taken me a little bit longer, but the skill set would be, you know, I'd be leveraging my time a lot better with it. Well, no, no. I, I, I think you learn. You need to learn both realistically. There's stuff that is quicker and easier in Tinkercad for sure versus Fusion 360. They both have their specific uses. Um, but let's go back to something James was talking about. If you're going to design something and put it on Thingiverse and you're going to have it have a um, license where people can do what they want with it, include the original files, whether it's Tinkercad Fusion 360, Rhino, whatever it is, include the original files because you're going to save somebody so much time. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The only problem with putting that in there is they're going to see, they're going to go through your timeline and if you you put the whole project up there, they'll see your timeline of how you screwed up 20 times and the the retarded way that you decided to uh, make it. It just, you know, it doesn't always look the greatest in the timelines. I mean, turn off timeline capture, export it to a new project, turn yeah, it back on. Yeah, send it out as a direct model or a, even a step file or something like that, you know. But, like, you can put up an uh, – in Fusion 360, you can put up an uh, FD3 file uh, that they can open and it acts as a copy of the project, you know, rather than actually sharing the project with them. So they've got a freestanding copy, and, you know, that's a direct modeling copy so they don't have the history and all that kind of stuff 
Gotcha, gotcha. That's yeah, see, and this is the kind of thing about Fusion 360. I almost can't wait to learn, but for now, because I'm a Linux weenie, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in air quotes using tools like Onshape. Now, Liam was talking about use the training tools to force yourself to learn these things. The the place, the thing I'm going to ask Liam about is is a couple of questions. Answer it however you see fit. Is there specific resources for each of those training tools, or do you just go to YouTube and search for things? And is there any tips you can give people in general trying to find better tutorials? Because what I can't stand is I find a tutorial, I click it, and then it's some crappy music with nobody speaking the whole time, with little text bubbles popping up at random times telling me what they're trying to do, and I'm having a hard time visually jumping from the text bubbles and and to like follow their mouse clicks. Uh, I, I despise those videos, and they're the ones that seem to have the most views that are the least useful. I, I don't I don't get it. Um, it's it varies by the product. Um, Tinkercad has a great built-in utility. Um, I, I ran through all those when I was first learning it. I ran my kid through those. He, he's, every once in a while, he'll say, hey, Dad, um, can you print this thing? And I'll look at it. I'm like, How, how'd you come up with this thing, you know? Um, Fusion, they have I, they have a couple channels, I think. I've watched some of their stuff. It's kind of hit and miss. It mostly seems to be advertisements for different features they're adding and removing. And the rest of it is just digging through videos until you find somebody that works with the way you want to learn. Um, Fusion has, uh, like, their YouTube offerings aren't that great. Um, I mean, they either are too advanced for the beginner or they are 30 seconds long and just, you know, show you how to make a rectangle. Um, but they do um, actually have a training schedule. Um, I'll have to dig up the link where they do webinars. They do probably four or five webinars a week that uh, anywhere from basic to very advanced. Um, those are really good. Those are really good. SolidWorks has a pretty decent built-in trainer. Uh, so does Tinkercad, uh, SketchUp too. But yeah, Fusion kind of lacks there. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, uh, if you're a beginner and you're kind of a maker type and you want to learn Fusion, there's a guy, uh, he's got a YouTube channel called NYC CNC. Uh, he he kind of started out green and he's learning as he goes. He's, 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 um, kind of an intermediate level machinist, but he started his YouTube channel when he didn't really know squat. So if you go back through his history and stuff, he does this thing called fusion Fridays where, um, he just goes through some feature of fusion 360 every Friday. He's really good to learn from if you're a beginner because he started out as a beginner and he just, you know, goes through it in a very detailed way without talking down to you it's it's good um but yeah uh i'll try to find the link um and i'll send it to dory you can put it in the show notes but fusion does have a webinar schedule but the only thing is those things are usually like an hour long so you know that does take some time those are those are pretty good um but yeah they're they're just their training videos they aren't that great i honestly i think the best way to learn a cad platform is just to get in one and start messing around and seeing what you can do. I mean, there's a lot of features you're never going to discover on your own, but uh, best, you know, you can watch everything you want. The best thing to do is just try to make, you know, pick a project and try to make it. Yeah, you don't know you need a specific part of the tool until you find out that you do, and then it's figuring out what is that thing called. Um, if you've got somebody that can help you with it, 
that's got to be a huge boon. Like I, I know I'm still lacking in getting things properly dimensioned so that they lock in place and referencing off this point or that point. That's that's where I always run into problems with Fusion right now. Yeah, and if I, anybody has any kind of you know particular issues, uh, I used to make CAD training videos. I'm happy to put some out um, if there's people who you know have an interest. Uh, yeah, for sure. I uh, <laughs> I need to get on the ball as well with uh, the Fusion 360. Um, you said uh, NYC and C was uh, a gentleman as well. NYC, as in New York City, even though he's in Ohio. But NYC C and C. That's uh, his YouTube channel, um, and it's mostly uh, machining. Um, not a lot of surface modeling. Mostly like you know, kind of normal rectilinear type stuff. You know, not he doesn't get super fancy with it, but he goes through um, modeling and then mostly the CAM stuff, computer aided manufacturing, the machining stuff. Uh, the machining stuff, I mean, if you've got access to a machine, they're great. If not, then you can probably ignore that. Um, but his modeling stuff is really good because he starts out with, you know, here's a sketch. You know, I extruded it here to make this. And then I put a sketch on this face to do this. You know, he, he assumes that you, you're, you know, new at it. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty good. Um, if you just go into uh, YouTube and type in Fusion Fridays, I think all his Fusion videos will come up. Yeah, and I like the way he talks um, to you. He'll he'll explain, hey, I should have done this on this part. This is how I'd do it this time because it would have given me better results, been faster, rendered better, or I just didn't like the results I got. Yeah, he's totally like down to earth. He doesn't hide his mistakes or anything like that. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and um, my own, now what I'll say is uh, I've checked out more than a couple on-shape things. The one thing about on-shape I like is because everything is by default public that means i can go into the tool search for anything find things and and bring them into my project file so i can borrow things that have already been made which is one of the things i really do like about it and then the inverse what i can't stand about the tool is whenever i go on youtube search for their official things how to make x how to do y you kind of thing the videos are always sped up by like tenfold and they zip through something that would probably take me an hour to do in literally like 15 seconds, which means I would literally have to constantly play pause, play pause their video to comprehend what they're doing. Yeah, that's their YouTube stuff, but their stuff for their tutorials that you get when you start up are very good because they give you the project file and everything so you can walk through the project file so yeah i i suggest with them is get their do their tutorials right away when you pick when you first and start using it yeah that was definitely a very good feature very smart feature as far as i'm concerned uh, and it did give me a lot of understanding how to do the basic things um I still had plenty of questions and most of them turned out to be what's the term for this because if i hover my mouse over it i see the term but i don't necessarily compute to what it actually does until i click it and you know play around yeah their u user interface is a little lacking they don't it isn't that easy to start using but once you learn how they're terming thing their terms and their language that they're using it becomes a little easier to use. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, 
next topic i'm going to ask you guys i'm going to first assume something and i'm going to ask you guys because sometimes when i ask you guys things it turns out my original assumption is completely wrong okay one i like the little tip liam gave earlier print just a couple layers and and then stop it and see how they look how they measure up kind of thing you save a lot of filament doing that is what i think I printed a couple of things this week where I took multiple STLs and I piled them in to cure all at the same time, spaced them out a little bit, then saved them out as G-code to print. So in general, just as a general rule of thumb, would you guys say it's okay to take a lot of different things and like, I don't want to say fill up your bed, but put a lot of things on the bed at once or better to print each thing one at a time. And the real reason I ask is because when I first put a lot of things on the bed, I saw a lot of stringing from item to item to item to item to item to where when I was done, it literally looked almost like a web going across the printer. And then I adjusted settings, reprinted, and everything came out much better. But for the new user, do you think it's better for them to just stick with printing one thing at a time until they have their printer better tuned in? Um, well, you're never gonna, you, you eventually got to try the multiple parts and find that problem of the stringing, you know, you're never going to learn if you don't try something. So, um, generally I print one or two things at a time because of, I don't, I don't want 20 hour prints, you know? What, what I was going to say is, um. It kind of depends on the part. If you're just starting and you want to mess with settings as little as possible, if it is, uh, you know, a medium size to a large object, and by that I mean like, you know, an inch wide or more, um, print one at a time. Uh, don't do too much until you kind of learn the settings and stuff like that. But if it's something tiny, like, you know, a lot of people like to print tiny little D&D miniatures and stuff like that, print a half a dozen of them at a time because you have to to get small stuff to print so much you have to tweak the settings quite a lot and a lot of that is canceled out by printing a bunch of little parts because the parts have time to cool down they've got a lot of small details and they've got time to cool down between layers if the printer goes over and does another part um so yeah for small stuff intricate little things if you're just starting out print print half a dozen different things at a time so the printer goes around all over the place and you're going to have to get in and mess with the settings a lot less than if you try to print one and you wind up just kind of making a you know semi-melted little figurine with you know a booger of of uh, filament just hanging off the end of your nozzle gotcha gotcha yeah i'm showing the guys in the chat now uh what he was printing was a what's called a gold scu gold scutilla from the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, and it splits in half because when you kill one of them, you get left with a golden-like coin. And it was all eight legs separately, the two body pieces and then the one coin inside. So it was nine total pieces. And I thought it was kind of ironic when I was first printing it. It looked like a spider web across the bed, and, and I was printing a spider. <laughs> so there, I have... And I think everybody has a good rule right here. And one of my rules for a while was um, I want to print something that's going to run all night long at night. And I want to print shorter things during the day when I'm going to operate the printer. 
And the other thought was um, some things I might be doing 10% infill, some things I might be doing 20% infill uh, with extra layers on the exterior for thickness. Now with Cura, I can only do that per build plate. So I would split uh, the parts up if I'm doing a multi-part like the DSLR camera shoulder rig. Uh, there's a number of parts for that. And some of them I need to print at 20%. Some of them need to be printed at 10%. And so I'll split my build plates that way. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I'm going to encourage him at least most of the time when I'm not here because I also made the unfortunate choice. I strung a USB cable from his desktop computer, which is under the table and backing away because I'm podcasting. I'm with a desktop in a quiet area up to his monitor. He has a Dell 27-inch monitor, which is bigger than I think most people's monitors, which has an SD card reader in the side. Right now, Octoprint not working for me. Um, I did download Diet Pi. I have it installed on a Raspberry Pi. Diet Pi version 154 is going to have Octoprint as a easily selectable install. But what I failed to notice was right now Diet Pi is up to version 153. So I'm going to wait a couple more days and Diet Pi should be up to date. And then I should be able to one-click Diet Pi uh, Octoprint onto here. And the reason I'm going to stick with Diet Pi is, one, it's based off of Armbian. Armbian is a heavily optimized distribution, so it should get better performance even than off of Raspbian. But two, built into their NCurses interface, I can do things very easily like disable the onboard Wi-Fi so it will never run and never connect using that. So I, I, I am going to reconnect the Octoprint, just not yet. So for now, I'm back off of using SD cards to print, and, and he's perfectly fine with it, only because he knows what to expect. He knows how it works. I've uh, shown him now how to go into Cura, pull in the STLs, change some of the basic options like does it need support or not and, and he pretty much understands when to give support to something and export it to the sd card and walk it out to the printer and print uh, whatever See, keeps you printing i'm just so jealous you got a kid that's interested in what you're doing uh it might be just because i'm interested in it i i'm pretty sure i'm going to find out pretty soon if it's a genuine or just that um and what did you say liam I was saying whatever keeps you printing, you know, um, it, it's just a workflow thing. That's all it is. Um, James, I'm curious what your thoughts on, well, I guess, how do you run? Do you run tethered? Are you running through SD card? And then the second part of that is, have you looked into or had any difference in performance of the printer running tethered versus straight off of a card? Because I, I know some people don't like running tethered because they say that, you know, the, the feed rate, y y the, uh, I guess the the queuing doesn't come up fast enough and you start getting errors. Okay, yeah. You actually uh, uh, struck on something I've dealt with a lot. Um, I don't like running tethered um, unless... Well, okay. I don't like running tethered in Windows. Uh, with a printer, I will like get some... I'll run it off an Arduino or some little board or something like that and print off an SD card because... Running G-Code takes very, very, very little resources. Um, but the big thing about running G-Code properly is you need an absolute minimum of latency. You don't have a lot of data going from the controller to the steppers and stuff like that. But the latency has to be 
like nothing. So in like a CNC system, and it doesn't matter if it's a 3D printer or if it's, uh, you know, a $250,000 five axis mill, you have a system, the controller is made up of two things. You've got the, the system that's the interface, you've got the actual controller, and then, you know, you've got the machine itself. And between the interface that's trickling the G code to the controller um, and the controller, the, the lag has to be nothing. Anything more than a few milliseconds is going to screw you up. And when you're running tethered over USB, USB has such a high latency that any little thing can trip you up. Because basically you're talking to your board that's controlling your printer and it's saying, okay, I'm going to execute this bit of programming and then I'm going to send you a signal saying, I've executed this line of code, send me the next one. Anything interrupts that and you're going to get an error. Three milliseconds of lag in addition to what it's used to will interrupt that. So I either run off of some very, very stripped down little board locally or I run off of Linux uh, over parallel port if it's, you know, I mean, obviously not parallel port on like a hobbyist printer or whatever, but and any, you know, like the CNC router I'm working on right now or anything like that. You, basically, if you can get your system to do absolutely nothing else um, than print, so yeah, take it off of Wi-Fi, take it off of everything, uh, run Windows 7 if you have to run Windows. Um, if it's important to you, that's going to minimize your errors. If it's really important, run uh, build a Linux called Linux CNC if you have to run it off a of PC. Um, if the the reason you can get away with running uh, like a Windows 10 laptop to run a 3D printer tethered is because the 3D printer is a very forgiving piece of equipment. It's not because it does a good job of it. It just doesn't. Um, anything over you, any CNC over USB has a certain amount of instability just built into the system. So I try to avoid it, you know, if I can. Yeah, it's kind of inconvenient, but. Um, you know, it's not as inconvenient as a uh, 20 hours into a print. You just get this mysterious communication error that like has no explanation <laughs> and, you know, your print just stops or whatever. And you don't know what line of G code it stopped at. So you can't pick it back up or anything like that. So I try to, I, I pretty much try to run off of an SD card. Um, like for my Robo 3D, I bought a little, uh, little board and made a little screen for it and everything that, you know, all the thing, all the thing does basically is act as a buffer between the SD card and the uh, the Arduino running the printer. I mean, that's all it does, and that's all it has to do. And so, you know, it does a good job of it. Like PCs, just uh, they do too many things at once to really do a good job. Um, you know, like you'd never run a CNC system, like anything where you know you could actually crash a machine. You'd never, never run one over USB. You just wouldn't do it. So run over SD, make sure it's a good SD card. Um, yep. And then depending on what kind of controller you have on your CNC or 3D print, make sure you have your read-ahead buffer very, very high. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, man, stupid question. Hypo hypothetically, I'm going to load Octoprint on a Raspberry Pi for convenience. Would it be better than if I, when I upload the STL file, instead of uploading it to the Octoprint, I actually upload it to the S to the S to the SD card inside of the printer itself? Well, see, I think we were still unclear on whether when you actually execute that code 
through Octoprint if it's reading from the SD card and then passing it back to the printer. Because I don't think there's any way for it to initiate it direct read. I mean, I, I guess you could upload it through Octoprint to the SD card in the printer and then initiate the G code from the printer's interface. But at that point, you could just take it over via SD card to begin with. Yeah, it's more the speed of the communication, the real-time communication between the um, controller and the printer, um, regardless of kind of where the source is from. Uh, you know, a stripped-down Raspberry Pi is probably going to do an okay job of it. Uh, Arduino is going to be a little bit more rock solid because it's made as a controller. Um, it's they're actually a little better suited for that sort of thing. That doesn't mean Raspberry Pi does a bad job, but you do you're gonna and have to expect a certain amount of hiccups. Um, like I don't know what it is for 3D printers; they're a bit more forgiving. But like um, even your hobbyist routers and stuff like that, if there's anything more than like a five or six millisecond round trip between the um, source file and the machine and then back to the controller it's going to alarm out so you know um a designated microcontroller uh that they're kind of they know that you know people build microcontrollers specifically for doing that so my guess is uh if it's sitting in the you know raspberry pi's memory it's not really going to matter where it got it from um it's you know it's all on how quick that real-time connection is Gotcha, gotcha. And I'll say to Liam, it makes a lot of sense what you said. I'm going to personally go out on a limb and say, I believe if I, through the Octoprint interface, upload to the SD card, then say load and print, it's literally going to then load it back over the USB up to the Octoprint and then give all the print commands from that. So with that said, I can see using the Octoprint just as a simplified remote interface to upload to upload to the SD card, but then to physically go to the printer and say print. Um, but, 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 but I will say uploading to the SD card over Octoprint because of the bald rate, which is that right there just tells me it is not going to be a fast u- upload. Yeah. I think the default on most of these is 11.5, 200. Um, whereas even a cheap SD card should be able to do that as well. But again, the question comes down to, is it, how much of a buffer does the uh, the controller have versus the print server? Because I, I doubt the uh, the Pi is going to be much of an issue there. I think the way that those run is the Pi just throws whatever it can at the microcontroller that's on the machine. And the microcontroller on the machine is responsible for buffering as much as it can. And when that buffer fills up, it asks for more information. All right, That's correct. When that, when that buffer is full, it stops asking for information, and when it needs more, it asks for it. And the Raspberry Pi just throws as much as it, at it as it can. And for like the CR10, I guess it's 11.5200. But there are other machines, other boards. I'm, I want to say Smoothie Board and other things where you can get double the baud rate or whatever the highest one is now. But yeah, the microcontroller stuff is more real-time. Raspberry Pi is definitely not real-time. And if you look at a couple of write-ups on the uh, BeagleBone Black, there's a, a BeagleBone Black cape is what they call it, which is a little daughter board you stick on the back that actually is made for 3D printing. And there's a Tom Salander review on it, but basically it's pretty much okay. It's not fantastic. 
you know, you may as well go buy a smoothie board instead of a Beagle Bone Black and a and that cape that does 3D printing. Although the Beagle Bone Black is a little more real time than the Raspberry Pi because it has two UARTs dedicated to real time activity. So it's kind of like a Raspberry Pi with added microcontrollers that you have control of. So you can do more real time stuff on the Beagle Bone Black, but um, the 3D printing thing they built for it, you may as well just get a you know a smoothie board or something really substantial. Also on the uh, microcontroller stuff, the X-Carve is just an Arduino board with a driver daughter board on top of it. And again, the same thing, your computer or your Raspberry Pi or whatever you've got just throws data at it, and it's responsible for buffering as much data as it can and spitting out as much commands as it can and then grabbing the next one in real time. And so that's my understanding of how that, all that kind of stuff works. Yeah, and you'll, you'll, you'll definitely notice that um, if you end a print or pause a print from the Octoprint interface, um, if you're printing something super simple like a big old square, um, it, it takes a minute for it to get through the buffer to the command for you to stop the print versus if you're printing something super intricate that has lots of tiny little moves, it's almost instantaneous. Yeah, you'll like sit there and watch it empty G-code lines out of the buffer until it stops. Yeah, I've noticed that when I... Uh... When I screw up on a print, which I've been I've been printing a MPCNC um, quite a bit lately, and uh, for some and for that reason, when I when I screw up on a on a uh, big thing of prints, it will, you know, it'll take a minute to stop. But if I do a little print like a uh, like a little figurine, like you guys were saying, like a little figure, it stops pretty quick so that is nice to know and nice to explain yeah and i guess ideally what you want is something that takes a while to stop even when you're printing the super intricate things so that you have that nice big buffer now i guess my thinking with it's always been why spend the money on uh some other thing to fill a buffer when whatever has the buffer in it generally has enough computing power to run the printer <laughs> you know so I've always just gone to, tended to go to SD cards and stuff like that. When I started printing, I had my laptop all hooked up to it, you know, out in the garage and tried all the different various softwares that were available. And I've always wound up just going to uh, just printing with as simple a system as I possibly can with a microcontroller, just because that's given me the best performance overall. Well, I think with me using... Octoprint is nice because I can watch my print off, you know, online. I can be at work and it can be printing at home, you know. There's that's the only reason I use it, and it's one less step. I don't have to walk over to my printer and start anything. I just sit here and do it, you know. Whether yeah, there's definitely an upside. Whether it's efficient in the end, it is convenient. Yeah, I go for the convenience as well. I mean, I think that's the huge reason why I have is because I can be sitting in my living room. I can, you know, sketch up something real quick, throw it on Simplify, then throw it on to my Octoprint, and it's up and printing if I already have, um, you know, a spool of filament in there and I don't even have to do anything versus having to come out here and fiddle with uh, the control con uh, control interface of the FT5 um, and 
I've used the SD cards uh, when I first started out, and I, I just really like the interface of the OctaPrint on uh, being able to move, be, being able to load the programs and being able to uh, uh, move the head around to wherever you need to, whether it's up, down, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's definitely a huge plus, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's all in what you kind of want out of it, you know? Well, that yeah, is totally. the, oh, sorry about that. The interface on Octoprint is so easy to use, and it's from my Android phone to my computer, any of my computers, you know. I don't have to babysit it as sitting here and watching it or sitting there turning it on. And then using the clunky uh, interface on the printer is just anything I can get away from using that is is good in my book. <laughs> yeah, ultimately it just comes down to knowing the limits of your tools. Um you're not going to break out the tape measure when you're trying to measure stuff sub-millimeter. Yeah, I, I'll say, I do think I understand a little bit now more. One, I'll say, when I had my Raspberry Pi with Octoprint installed, once in a while it would lock up and stop transmitting Wi-Fi data. Um, but then what I noticed was it would still run the print for sometimes almost up to an hour. Now I understand much more because of the complexity of the print was directly proportional to how long it would run after that lockup would happen because of the amount of information in the buffer. If that is correct, I I like to believe so. Um, that's that's absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. So there There's is a two different things there. Also, the Wi-Fi has nothing to do with the connection from your Pi to the printer. So if your Wi-Fi disconnects and your printer is printing. It doesn't matter if the Wi-Fi disconnects. It will continue printing until it dies or you turn it off. So that's, I think, a different different issue. Well, no, I, I then have a small 4-inch HDMI monitor that I also brought out to the garage, physically connected to the Pi with a small little micro keyboard, and it was unresponsive unre, um, unre, um, uh, from that. So I took it as... The OS on the Pi literally just locked up. And um, so it's one of those balancing acts. You have to decide to yourself, how important is this print? What is the complexity of this print? And what's my expectations of this print? So if you are just printing something common that isn't, you know, crazy amounts of filament that you don't really mind. I don't want to say if you don't mind if it fails, Octoprint is fantastic. But if you're willing to pay the price of, if something goes wrong, if there's a delay, if there's a lag, if there's a if there's a problem with my USB cable even being cheap, I'm willing to pay that price just for the convenience factor. Yeah, that's really the decision you kind of got to make. You know, it's uh, reliability versus convenience. And uh, Octoprint, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Octoprint. It's reliable for what it is. But uh, yeah, it's just it's a trade-off, I guess. Where I started 3D printing and more of an industrial environment, um, our focus was always, you know, it wasn't a maker environment at all. You know, our focus was always on uh, reliability and absolute, you know, rock solidness, tolerance, you know, meeting tolerances and, you know, the end product. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's like my kids just love getting a little email when their print's done. So, <laughs> you know, they're coming at it from the total other end. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, uh, jumping into the next topic, uh, Aaron wanted to talk about bed ed, bed adhesion. I promise I'll find a better way to do these transitions in the future, but for now, Aaron, uh, what did you want to talk about that? 
Well, honestly, after talking about all this extra in-depth detail, I feel like uh, my topic's not really that important. <laughs> well, first off, Aaron, you're always important. Number, number not two. Not me. Not me. But the importance of, I guess, the necessity of uh, having a quality uh, adhesion to your bed is all is what I was getting at, but I that is always important. I just, uh, after talking so techie uh, so far, this is definitely less techie. No, no, I don't know. I think well, Jonas can probably vouch the importance of bed adhesion after watching that last print. <laughs> 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 yeah, firstly, it's right. probably the most important. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, I just... I think this just goes back to not just the beginning, the beginner, but everybody. I mean, I think we all come across it where we think, um, you know, especially with us guys that have been doing it for a while, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got it down, no problem. And then you get thrown for a loop and you're like, ah, crap, that just lifted. You know, what's going on? And then you have to start diagnosing all that. And I just wanted to talk about, you know, uh, just the different kinds of adhesion uh, we can use. You know, we all know that, you know, when you're first starting out, there's always the um, uh, masking tape, and uh, which is usually a good beginning start. Or if you get the glass bed, you're using, you're using glue stick. Or um, if, uh, if you're not uh, using glue stick, you're uh, using... Sorry, um, if you're not using a glue stick, you're using, um, you know, some kind of uh, um, hairspray even. I, I can't believe I said that, but, no. you know, some people are using hairspray. Um, and then uh, I think uh, for the more advanced uh, uh, people that really want to go, go past that, um, Liam and I have tried a couple different ones. Um, for a while there, I was, uh, I had tried some, uh, what was it? PT. What was that? Liam PT. Oh, uh, it was pet tape. The, the green oh, yeah, stuff. That was, yeah. That green stuff. That's what I was getting at. I was like, I always, yeah. So we tried the pet tape and, eh, you know, I still got some sheets of it. I wasn't too, uh, thoroughly impressed with it. It was okay. It worked for a little bit, you know, then, uh, which you would, uh, put on, um, it's got an adhesion on the backside and put onto uh, glass, and it stuck pretty, you know, pretty okay, I guess. And then uh, I've been using for a while is uh, PEI tape, which is the same kind of thing. Uh, Liam found a real good distributor. I'll have to find that link on uh, where to get it from, but it works really good. Um, and I actually found. I need to post a YouTube video of it as well, but I found a really good way of getting it off after it's worn worn out, which is just put heat to it and start, you know, like a hairdryer and start, you know, go for a corner and start slowly peeling it off the glass and it will actually peel up the sticky as well. So you don't have to go to uh this ridiculous soak it in alcohol for whatever amount of time and, you know, procedure that you've seen. There's quite a few of them on YouTube that I've seen. They're just utterly ridiculous. And so I've been doing the PEI tape for a while, which is 
been pretty good, but after a while, you know, even wiping with alcohol, it uh, starts to wear out. And the the advantage of PEI tape for me, and I know Liam liked it for a while as well, was, you know, when it heats up, it sticks real well. And then when it cools down, you're able to pop um, your print off the bed pretty pretty decently. Not too bad. But then I think it was Chad that ended up bringing up uh, using, it was Chad or Jonas, because Jonas has obviously got it there, but uh, it's got a few wrinkles in there. Um putting on capped on tape on your uh, glass and uh using that as a as a nice uh, stick adhesion and that actually i even tried that i had an issue with uh, a print i was printing uh, when i was doing those fidget spinners i couldn't get the caps to stick and so i was like okay i got a quick fix i didn't want to throw down glue stick so i was just like um Threw down uh, some Kapton tape on top of my PEI tape, stuck first time, you know, cooled down. I just popped them right off. Worked great. So I think I might be peeling off the PEI tape and going with some Kapton uh, tape like Chad and Liam have been doing. And then uh, you guys talked about, what, a 50-50 mix of alcohol to water that seemed to work real well after that, after you, uh, after it cools down your prints? Yeah, the the fifty fifty mix works well to get the prints off. That seems to work on any smooth surface. I've had real good results getting it off bare glass. If you don't want to oh, wait for it to cool down, because I, I think what happens is part of it is capillary action. It gets under the print and makes a little bit of lubricity, um, and then you've got the the cooling of the alcohol. And I think the alcohol probably reduces the um, oh god re- reduces the the surface tension to help yeah. with the the capillary action a little bit. And then it just sucks it up in there and pops it right off. Oh, um, excellent. The the thing I really liked about the PEI, at least the PEI I was getting, the matte one. Yeah, that's the one I was, have. Yeah. It gives you a matte but smooth finish as opposed to the glass shiny finish that the captain gives you. Yeah, see, and I noticed that as well. And I was like, oh, I was like, I really like the just that matte finish. It was so smooth. And I'm like, ooh. That was really cool, but then I tried that Kapton tape, and I noticed it was really shiny, glossy. I'm like, I don't like that as much. But other than that, I mean, they both worked really well. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I'll, I'll say what I'm going to guess is the material that you're printing, the bed that you're on, the temperature you're on, is all going to play into major factors on how you're going to get the best ad, um add um add a adhesion to the bed um because i'll say when i lowered my printing temperature it seems like now i i don't want to say i need to have glue stick on my bed for it to adhere but i've noticed without putting glue tick uh glue stick on or, or without putting on enough almost one out of four prints i've printed after the first three or four layers it seems like the entire object comes off the bed and then just like bounces well, around. Yeah, but aren't you on bare glass? Yes, sir. Yeah, and see, I, I was meant to bring that up as well, and I noticed that all you guys, there's what you, Liam, Jonas, uh, just Chad. Chad, do you have a, a CR10 as well or not? Nope. Nope. You and me don't. Um, have all been able to print 
straight onto bare glass, which is great. I mean, you know, that says something for the CR-10, but, you know, yeah, you definitely got to realize, Dora, that because you're printing on bare glass, you need to always make sure that you get a nice, clean um, surface before you start that print. So every time you hit that print, you're going to want to, you know, alcohol and a wipe, wipe it down, you know, uh, paper towel wipe, whatever, you know, something that's got, doesn't have a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, dust in it and uh then give that a shot but yeah if you have to start using the glue stick so be it that's pretty much what i use is glue stick all the time i got a heated bed bare glass uh just hit or miss i don't know maybe i'm not doing it right but uh glue stick works pretty well it's not perfect actually i tried with abs uh something i saw online uh, mixing um, acetone and abs and making like a dissolved abs liquid and painting it on the bed ABS stuck really, really well, but I had the opposite problem. I couldn't get anything off the bed, so I stopped using it. I mean, I'd break prints. I was afraid I was going to break the glass before they'd come off the bed. So it was kind of like, oh, well, yeah, I guess that worked, but uh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny you say that because I'd seen uh, a few videos uh, with that mixture concept of, uh, you know, kind of mixing that ABS juice, I guess is what they call it. Um, together but i've also seen yeah where you could almost break your bed i think i saw one where the guy actually broke his glass bed right off <laughs> yeah i was afraid i was gonna break mine and i didn't didn't use it anymore pretty much stick to glue stick but i'll try like getting ultra ultra clean bare glass and see how that goes i mean i clean it but i never got you know super fussy about it i, found I was it. using the abs juice on blue tape for ABS, and that works. If your ABS isn't sticking to your blue tape, maybe try that. I've also I tried that and this... pulled my tape up when it warped. Yeah, when it warped, it can grab that. I've also got something called PVA mold release, and it's basically an alcohol solution of PVA. I don't know what PVA stands for anymore. I forgot. But uh, PVA is that... polyvinyl uh, alcohol. I've got about a gallon of it. I use it for composite molds. Yeah, so you can dab that on the glass as well and that gives you like a super thin um layer of something for it to stick to that you know just like it releases molds from your composite molds it'll do the same thing for the glass oh cool i'll definitely have to try that because i've got it sitting around i hardly ever use it that's a oh that's a good idea um i'm gonna try that tomorrow i think cool yeah it like dries into like a film you know that you could probably just peel off and you know when you wanted to clean yeah, it. I, I think it's water-soluble, too, so after you, yeah, you can rub it off when it's done. Yeah, if you want to clean it off, it'll usually peel off in a layer if it's thick enough. And if it's thin and you can't peel it off in a layer, just like a damp paper towel will take it off. But I'll have to try that. I never thought of it for 3D printing, but that should work. Well, I mean, if you're talking about PVA, because I, I, I'm hard of hearing, and it sounds like you're saying PBA. Oh, I'm saying PVA. Is he saying PBA? I, I don't know what he's saying, but PVA is just glue stick. I mean, that's what that's what white glue is. Yeah, oh, is it? Same thing. Isn't PBA an alcohol? Uh... Yeah, uh, PVA is a green liquid. It's polyvinyl alcohol. It dries into PVC almost, like the plastic that it dries into is chemically really similar. Huh, that sounds pretty cool. 
you can get it uh it's not very expensive you can um there's a fiberglass.com you can get little tubs of it for not a whole lot i can't remember what i paid for it their their pricing isn't the best but for hobbyists uh people who do composite stuff um you can buy small quantities from them and you know most companies you got to buy like you know two gallons or 10 gallons or something um but yeah yeah that's uh i'll have to try it i'll let you guys know how it goes yeah definitely do that i've i've found that it seems like there's uh a varying degree of quality when it comes to the boro glass um i have two that work really really well they when you warm them up a little bit they feel like extremely sticky even after cleaning it off really well and i have another one that you, you warm it up and it just feels like a warm piece of glass it doesn't seem to make any difference so i'm, I'm kind of convinced from my entirely unscientific anecdotal evidence that uh you got to have good boro glass for for you to be able to print directly on glass yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that, you know. My burrow still like glass just, you know, just it doesn't do anything for me. I can't understand why. Well, I'll say I swear on my CR10, the actual piece of glass that came with it, when I clean it off using alcohol, water, paper towel, it just feels sticky. I just feel like a little tactile when I put my fingers off on it and like pull it off. I swear I feel a little bit of a stickiness to it. Um, but when I lower the temperature, it just doesn't seem like it sticks as much. Well, you might crank up the temp on your first layer. Um, you, you were using my settings and I do print really, really hot. Um, don't, don't do like Liam does. Liam prints like 10 degrees above the top temperature range for PLA because I, I want my stuff to adhere together really hot. And that might be why it's been sticking to the glass so well for you until you lowered it down to normal printing temperatures. Yeah, Dor, just don't listen to Liam at all. Well, I did notice the actual trade-off because more than one thing that I printed since I lowered my temp, there's been at least one or two prints where uh, after the first real layer, which I actually I'm going to guess is like three or four layers in, and then when the mold starts to change directions, I can actually see a little bit of air gap where there's not as much layer atom atom adhesion, and I take it just. I need to more finely tweak the printer. Um, the next topic, uh, Lee, um, Jonas, in what is so far unbelievably robust Jonas fashion in his topics, uh, his, he starts off with wanting to make it big. Um, do you want to uh, tell us about that, Jonas? Sure. I got a couple of points here this week. Make it big, exclamation point. I made one of the uh, the big giant prints, so I made a little, if you think of a small bathroom trash can, I made a, uh, a pumpkin ribbed shaped trash can for myself to put under my printer so that I can capture the, the droppings from the printer. And it took about six and a half hours. Um, not too bad. It was a, It's a single wall, so it's using that method of um, doing the spiral vase. I used uh, PETG. So that, uh, you know, prints like ABS 240C and 70 degree bed is what I used. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if you want me to go through these points or if this, just leave that for show notes. Well, I, I would say at least uh, talk about them for a minute to give people a reason to, to uh, go to the notes. So basically, I just found a object I liked. And I formed it into a vase 
for myself. Or you could find a vase that you like the shape of if you want to make a trash can. So basically, open top, closed bottom. And when you use the, um, I'm sure Cura has a setting, but I'm using Slick 3R as a slicer. And it's got a spiral vase setting, so when you click that button, it automatically fixes up a couple of settings for you so that you get a single wall of filament. It's zero infill, um, and there's no top layer. So you, you put a couple of layers on the bottom for a base, and then it just starts building from there all the way up as far as it will go. Um, so I have here, find a vase that you like, um, open your favorite slicer, turn on spiral vase mode, and set your temperature settings for the material you're using and then just start printing. Um, then I've got some things to look out for, um, some things I've found. So feeds and speeds, again, you really should print, if you're going to do some big giant thing, print a small version, you know, a 10% of your total size if it's, you know, like a three foot tall thing, um, just to make sure it prints like you like because it's going to be, you know, many, many hours. And if you come back in three hours and it doesn't look right, you got to start all over again. So that's never fun. On my particular one, I've got some pictures here. Um, you can see at the bottom, I've got kind of a, a base that comes up and then it goes in the diameter a bit and then it goes back out and flares out again. And where it did that, because of the speed I was printing, um, the layers started coming apart. So I slowed down the printer at that point and just let it go the rest of the way at that speed. So I started out at speed 45 for the PET-G and uh, slowed it down 90% of that at the end. So by the numbers, it was supposed to take six and a half hours um, to print and it actually took seven and a half hours because I slowed it down just a little bit. So the next thing I have here is Space 1999 and there's a nice link to the first episode of Space 1999 if you like that kind of thing. So um, first, check how far back and forward your bed travels. I've got my printer set on a table that I had built a shelf above it previous to putting this printer on it. And if I go actually to the top of the print, it will run into that shelf. So I had to actually move my table away from the wall so that I could print as tall as the printer would go. So that was one thing. Um, Another thing is your extruder wires. Um, depending on your printer, if you built it yourself or you've changed anything from the factory, I'm sure the factory would have you know the wires in the right place and where they should go if it was built by the factory. But um, this one, although mostly factory built, I changed out the hot end, which shortened my hot end wires just a little bit. So I had to pull away my wires from the top of the print because when it got towards the top of the edge the wires were touching the back and when you touch one edge of the print on one side it will move the print on the other side at the top and again throw off your layers so they won't stick together properly so make sure there's nothing that's going to come in contact with your print as it's growing tall and then the filament again the same I've got a filament box that I use. So I have my filament running out of a box on the left of the printer. I'm not using the filament spool that's sitting on the printer. Um, so that's another thing to look out for as far as space. You want to make sure that when your filament feeds out, it's actually going to be in a good line to where the filament goes into your printer. 
On the CR10, where the print spool goes into the extruder, um, that actually pushes the filament through the bottom tube. That actually moves up with the z-axis, which means if your print spool is on the table and your printer z-axis goes up, the filament's going to be at a weird angle and it might start binding with the uh, as it unravels off the spool. So you want to make sure that that path is always clear and that there's nothing obstructing you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say what this is. This should, and I don't want to say a word of warning because that's not what it is. But every time you ex you expand the X, the Y, or the Z on a print, because your first prints are always going to be physically smaller. But every time you either go wider with the print or taller with the print, you're going to encounter new variances on your print that you're going to have to account for, like the cables touching the print, thus making the actual top of the printed object wobble to the side is something you almost can't foresee unless you've already experienced it. So my logic is the first time you print something that's drastically higher, drastically wider, drastically deeper, whatever, you should baby it a little bit more and watch it a little bit more and make sure that these kinds of things ain't happening because I don't see how a first time printer would be able to, you know, print something now drastically bigger and foresee these kinds of things happening if they don't watch it themselves. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, even on the other printer that we've completely built from scratch, um, the cable routing isn't fantastic. And as it's printed different things, you know, the, the y-axis, the bed will go forward and backward. And if you don't have your cables tied up and out of the way, they'll get pulled and pinched and you might actually unplug something you know that like the z-axis sensor to say it stops at the right place so um you got to be careful of those things when you're doing that kind of stuff oh yeah and i'll say even just manually moving my z to better clean off my bed at one point in time i accidentally jostled this g uh plug enough for it to not be completely connected and then my son went down and tried to print a couple things and i think he was almost afraid to tell me it wasn't printing correctly and he just told me uh yeah the print didn't come out right i'll try again tomorrow morning and then when i went down and i tried to print a couple things i, I noticed something's not working right and i noticed that the plug was partially undone so i had to fix that um you do have more things in the notes i didn't know if you wanted to jump to that next or not because what you have listed next, I think, is gorgeous. Yeah, just a little link to um, a box I found on Instructables.com. And um, I've got, um, in my G+, somewhere along the way, I've got a 3D printing group thing that I subscribe to. So that's another thing you might look for in, in G+, is um, their 3D printing ideas that come up every once in a while. And this is one of them. It's a really easy-to-make easy to find parts to make a enclosure for the CR10 specifically. Um, you could put pretty much any printer inside this box, but basically it takes a four and a half, four by eight sheet of one eighth inch acrylic from Home Depot or Lowe's, wherever you want to get it. And they have a plan on how to cut it into pieces to make an enclosure for the printer. And also some of the parts are the base is an MDF piece of MDF board. So I think it probably doesn't use more than a, a half or a quarter sheet of 4x8 MDF, you know, that you cut 
a couple of times to make a base that you connect the plexiglass to. And it also includes um, some 3D printed parts like the corners of the tops of the box. There's inside corners blocks that you 3D print and then you screw the uh, plexiglass onto those 3D blocks. Um, and that makes the, uh, the top part of the enclosure. And then there's hinges that you can print for the doors that are on the side of the enclosure. And also, you know, a little 3D printed knob. And all you have to add to that is some little bit of hardware screws to screw some stuff together. Another interesting thing they did is they used, um, I believe, two um, lack tables. I guess it's an IKEA thing. I don't have an IKEA here, so I have no idea what they're talking about. But basically a cheap little square table that's low to the ground that you can bolt stuff to. They actually took apart their entire control box, took out the power supply, took out the screen, took out the Melzi board, and the uh, the power connector and, and power switch. And they made a separate, sorry about that, separate 3D enclosure box for each little circuit board that they relocated and they just bolted it bolted it to the underside of the table and now you've got a self-contained 3D printer enclosure. So if you're doing ABS or, or something that requires um, a constant ambient temperature, that's what the enclosure is good for. Gotcha. gotcha. Well, I, I'll say I love LAC tables. At, at the low end, I believe you can get them for about $7 a pop and there's a bunch of hacks. If you just Google search LAC L-A-C-K, hack, H-A-C-K, you'll find a bunch of people doing a bunch of stuff with those tables. I want to build one of those on my new router now. i got an excuse. Yeah, I've got my X-Carve sitting on one of those plastic things you get at either Costco or Lowe's. It's just the, the plastic you know, tubes that look like vacuum cleaner tubes on top of a plastic mesh rack. And so I took one of those and just built it in half in two pieces, and that's what the X-Carve sits on. So it makes a really nice little low table that you can work with stuff. Yeah, that's a good-looking enclosure. Um, I, I hate cutting and gluing acrylic, though. I'll say that for dang sure. Um, yeah. That's that's way better looking than my, my grow tent. But, man, that grow tent, that thing was set up in four minutes. I think you had me at four minutes. Yeah, definitely. Pop-up tent, you're done. <laughs> So next on the list, I've been doing a little more velocity painting, which is that is the thing where you take an image and you combine it with an object, and it basically draws the object on the I'm sorry draws the image on the face of the object by way of changing the speed of the print head as it prints. So there's some links there for the people that I first found this from, and they have. Uh, of course, the Perl code that you can just download and run the Perl script and combine your your image and your object. Or now I've found they have a GUI tool that's actually for Windows, Linux, and Mac. So you can just download a tool and it has all the the attributes that you need to plug in as far as the size of the image, um, if you want it to wrap around the top, the bottom, if you want to wrap it around like a cylinder or wrap it around as a sphere. Um, all those kind of options are pretty neat. And I also found they have an online G-Code viewer. And if you go to, I think, gcode.ws is which what Tom Slander usually uses in his videos, 
that will not show you what your velocity painted g-code file looks like you've got to actually use a g-code viewer that shows you um, the difference in the velocity of the lines you're you're printing and if you go to velocitypainting.xyz slash oh I don't have that one slash GUI slash code I'm sorry let me start that again velocitypainting.xyz slash GUI slash G code dot HTML that is the G code viewer and so you can just drag and drop any G code on there and it'll show it to you and if you've done velocity painting to your G code file it will actually show you a color coded version of the speeds at which different lines are printed so you can actually see your image on the G-code view, whereas other other programs you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, I don't believe Cura will show you that. I know Slick3R does not do that. However, I believe someone was saying Simplify3D does have that feature where if you throw in a yeah, velocity paint G-code, yeah, but it costs cool. money, so this right. is nice. Yeah, 150 bucks, but there's other one for free. It's a little you know drag and drop and move it around and, and see it so that's that's kind of cool so I've I've basically put a, a company logo from a company that we work with on a little box for a pencil holder basically and gave that to them as a gift because they're good clients so that was kind of neat to do very well uh, really quick can you tell the listeners what is velocity printing and the real reason I'm asking you to describe it is because I was easily confused because earlier this week I saw a we I think saw a guy post a YouTube video where he's changing the appearance of prints based upon temperature, but this is something different. Correct. So what you're doing is instead of changing the temperature, you're changing the speed that your um, print head moves. So as the head moves, you'll notice that you set the speed at 60 millimeters a second and it makes your whole entire model at that speed at least the outside if, if that's the simple setting you're using whereas this will change the speed it'll slow down the printer to half the speed at the point that the image is black so you're you're basically taking a black and white image and mapping it to an object um, basically the same way that you know video games map textures to things um, except you're doing it to a you know black and white image to a, a 3d object that you're printing so as the print head moves around, as it goes from left to right, if that spot on the image that you mapped is black, it'll slow down to the slow speed that you've given it in your script. And then when it clears that black area and goes back to the white area, it speeds up to its normal speed. And so you get this fast, slow, fast, slow print. And if you've noticed when you print things at one speed, they look a certain way. When you print them at a slower speed, they look a little bit different. Well, that small variation in speed will let you see the image that you've mapped to your object. Is that adjusting the flow of the extruder at the same time, or is it um, just speeding up the printhead and not changing the extruder speed? Looking at the G-code file, it's simply just adding a speed to the end of every line. So it, it analyzes your G-code file and applies a speed according to the mapped image you give it. So I don't believe it's actually changing the extrusion at that point. I think it's just adding the F value in the G-code at various points in the, in the print. 
Yeah, it just uh, the F value just becomes like the default until changed for as long as the code runs. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, this is to me the kind of thing that I almost I almost can't wait to play with. But right now I'm trying to take baby steps. I do believe I completely understand how this is going to look when I do it, but I'm still looking forward to that um, moment when I first do it and I actually see the results. Okay. I will say the difference. One of the differences is uh, the guy's video, which I'll see if I can find and post in the notes. He was using temperature variation in his printing and he required you to download basically a Microsoft Excel template import your code into it click a couple buttons and it would manually automatically go through your g code and and basically redo certain lines in your code um this to me doesn't seem like as complex as a solution to get what you need out of it i actually expect that it's doing exactly the same thing this one's changing the speed the other guys is changing the temperature cuz you i believe you can probably set the temperature whenever you want the difference is when you change the temperature there's a time frame of when your print head is actually going to be that temperature and you're going to have to the pause a bit and this guy's code from what i could tell is it pauses and actually moves away for a bit and then comes back when it's the right temperature to print the next thing in the next temperature if it's changed so if you're doing something simple where it only changes a couple of times I can see that working pretty well, but if, if you've got something that, if you're trying to change temperature with an image, like what we're doing with the velocity painting, that might be a little bit tougher, and it might make your print a little stringy. Also, he was using a PLA that's impregnated with wood, and he specifically said that the wood that he was using was actually working well for that. He had tried another wood impregnated PLA, and it was not working as well. So you really didn't notice the temperature change with one brand compared to another. So um, again, if you find the link to that video, I did watch that and, and that was pretty neat. And it, it just shows you that these print files, you know, these magic print files we deal with for this stuff, they're not magic. They're just text files. You can go in there and manipulate them and change them to whatever you want. And if you know the math behind what you need to do at what point and what line, you know, you can script up something and make it do whatever the heck you want. Good, good, good call. I will say you are absolutely right. He did explicitly say this filament was able to show the biggest contrast in the amount of um, in the amount of color based upon temperature. Yeah, he's definitely exploiting the uh, the material properties. I like. I, I know I have some filaments that if you print hot are going to come out shiny, and if you print them cooler they have a much more matte finish uh you, you've got to find which filament would work best for whichever you're doing um probably the best way i can describe the velocity printing is it's it's taking advantage of I, I i guess the best thing i could compare it to is polarized light so as you lay down the lines faster the material is going to be more lined up in one direction versus another as when you go slower, it's going to come out and just kind of glob in there. And so it's refracting light differently. Um, that's probably why people mostly do it with PETG, being that it's a translucent to begin with as well. Gotcha, gotcha. So you can get the biggest um, contrast. 
Very cool, very cool. Um, and honestly, Jonas, I encourage you to keep bringing this type of topic up because this is the kind of thing where I truly believe people listening to this show kind of understand it, but until they see it themselves, until they print it themselves, until they witness the kind of change that can happen based upon the speed of printing, I don't think they're going to fully understand the impact it can have on your ending print. Um, this is the kind of thing where uh, people like me dream about having dual heads to where I can print this in black and this in white to get different looks upon it where to the beginner beginner or the people with the simpler printer you don't necessarily have to have to have that layer of hardware to get the look that you want you might just be able to print with different speeds and get at least some of that look yeah and there I found another guy I haven't I don't have the link but um, the other day I was looking at it and this guy was making himself a lampshade and he wasn't using a special transparent translucent filament he was using i think white pla and just the difference of changing the speed made the pla print thin enough in certain areas and so he made himself a lampshade and you could see the pattern in the uh the lampshade when you turn the light on but you couldn't see it at all when it was off so depending on what you want to do with it you know there's different things you can do there you go very cool and i will say your intensity of notes makes me feel much more comfortable with the fact I'm drinking a clear beverage that's not completely water-based. Well, I'm sure it's half alcohol, right? <laughs> no comment. Uh, Chad, okay, you teased this in the beginning of the show, Chad. You have made, from what I, it looks like to me, some significant upgrades to your mostly printed CNC, and I think you wanted to make that your main topic? Yeah, um... Yeah, I did hit on it a little bit earlier. Um, had a lot of fun this week. Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's fun, but it was something. Um, upgrading my MPCNC. Uh, um, what I did is I took a water-cooled spindle, 2.2-kilowatt uh, water-cooled spindle, and put it on there. And to do that, I had to change some of the um, mounting hardware or printed parts and then I added or I changed the upgraded the motor from a NEMA 17 to a NEMA 23 and there was STL files on Thingiverse but in true fashion they weren't documented greatly and I should have done the suggested of just printing a couple layers seeing if it fit you know not wasting all the time but, and then in the end, I ended up just making my own model and doing it that way. So that's kind of the fun I had. And then um, just if, if the varying degrees of quality of uh, components you can buy, um, I bought a very, very cheap, I want to say it was like two $250 for uh, the spindle and a uh, variable speed controller for the spindle. And I wish I would have watched some YouTube videos and done a little more research, but I had bought this oh, a couple years back here now. And there is varying quality of even the cheap Chinese manufacturers um, 
not all Chinesium is made the same. Um, what I did find is the, uh, I don't know how to say it, Han Yang, Han Yang um, products are far superior, well, as far as the cheaper, you know, the, the sub $400 units, you can get pretty much the same unit I bought for right around the same price, but their uh, variable speed controller is much better, um, has a finer tuning, all that, and I wish I would have bought that instead of the one I did buy, and that's kind of what I want to talk about was the, just there is varying qualities of stuff on eBay is where I got it. And generally you can tell that uh, um, with the uh, Han Yang stuff is it's going to have a little HY somewhere on the tagging or something. And try to buy that if you're going to go on the cheap end of stuff. I mean, yeah, you can buy $2,000 spindles if you want, but it seems a little outrageous for my price line, but that's kind of one thing I wanted to get across is to buy good quality stuff even though you're buying the lower end stuff there's still quality differences in that well a really quick question what was the immediate benefits to getting those better components well I was using a roto zip and if you've ever ran a roto zip for more than a few minutes um, they're loud very loud and they rattle and when you're cutting with them, they vibrate really bad. And they only go up to like 10,000 RPMs or whatever it is. I don't even remember. Now, Plus they blow air and dust is everywhere. Yes, that was, that was another thing that I found too. Um, I put in this spindle and it's as loud as maybe what is like... Uh, like a motor for like a RC or like a quadcopter. It it there it's the same principle actually. It's the same style motor setup in there. And they're just super quiet. They run on th three phase and they're efficient. A lot of horsepower out of them. Um, very little vibration and just quiet. I mean. The fans are louder than my spindle is now to cool the components. Yeah, I'll say it used to be a scream. Now it seems like a hum. Yeah, it's like a little high-pitched hum, yeah. Cool. I'm hoping to fire up my first water-cooled router spindle tomorrow. So <laughs> I was curious to see how it actually sounded because, you know, they say, oh, it's quiet, it's quiet, but, you know, I hadn't used, uh, used like, a... a uh, hobbyist water cold spindle before, so I was kind of skeptical. But oh, they're just as quiet as like one in a machine, you know. Well, you know, in a big machine, they're generally ceramic bearings and whatnot. You get after you get them broke in, they actually get quieter too because the bearings make a little bit of noise when they're first starting up. Yeah, so, yeah. Even the high end machines are kind of like yep. that, though. Yeah, like. New servos and new mills always sound kind of grindy. The servos and the spindles and everything's going to kind of wear in. Yeah, you got to get that grease in all those spots. And I did what we generally do when we get a new machine is you start it out at about 30% spindle, 
let it run for 10, 15 minutes, crank it up 10, you know, 10%, just keep cranking it up till you're at full speed and then just let it sit there for like 15, 20 minutes and then slowly work it back down. And after that was done, let it let it cool, kicked her back on, and it was even quieter than before. It, it's super nice. I, I can't wait to actually start cutting some wood and see what it sounds like then. And it's uh, 24,000 RPM, so shouldn't create much uh, vibration. You know, it should just cut clean, I hope. So what's the difference between that and something that you would mill um steel with like if you have you know a bridge port and you're milling steel or something what is the difference between that kind of spindle and you know a big metal cutting spindle usually it's the uh the speed but it's also um, rigidity rigidity and this is a direct system it's all in one thing whereas in like a bridge port or any of the knee mills they're on a belt and pulley system they're not directly mounted and that's the difference it's all one cartridge you know it's a cartridge spindle basically yeah your mills can have a lot like uh wider bearing surfaces and stuff like that it's going to be lower rpm and it's going to be a lot more rigid and the motor is going to be separate from the spindle where a router it's going to be Spindle and motor in line with each other to the same thing. And, you know, rather than like eight, ten thousand RPM, you're going to have like 20, 30,000 RPM. But they're not nearly as stout and rigid. Right. You could cut aluminum with this. You know, you're going to have to slow it down and you cut real thin cuts, you know, but you could do it. Yeah, you cut aluminum sheet with a spindle like that without a whole lot of issue. Uh, theoretically you can like mill aluminum molds and stuff on them but in reality from what i've seen it's not like really practical it'd be very time consuming because your your chip load would have to be so low yeah to spin the thing up at, you know twenty five thousand rpm for four days to do some little <laughs> little part and for the british listeners that's aluminium <laughs> Yeah, the guys uh, who I work for in Australia always give me a hard time about that. Aluminum is actually, I actually like, aluminum is actually right. The original name was actually aluminum and then the British changed it to aluminium. So I say aluminum. (laughs) Actually, I know that weird little useless factoid. I can't remember where I heard it, but supposedly aluminum is actually the original name of it. So we can all feel better about ourselves. Yeah, that doesn't shock me at all. I'll say a lot of cultures like like to re a re a appropriate words and redefine them and re vocalize them on how they see fit. Um, I gotta say, guys, it has been two hours, but no doubt, I honestly can't think of a single show on any podcast. I subscribe to well over a hundred shows that packed as much information into a single episode. It's that fire hydrant theory, you know, just douse them. Well, yeah, I keep picturing the movie UHF where Kramer, but I can't remember his name in that movie, asked you if you wanted to drink out of the water fountain or did you want to drink out of the fire hose? Fire hose. Give them the hose. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And who couldn't pass that up? I mean, come on. It's a a once-in-a-lifetime ordeal. Or 
if you subscribe to the Podnuts feed for the makers, it seems to be whenever I remember to get the shows out. Um, I will say I promise to get more regular with releasing the show. Notice the, the extreme lack of specificity when I said that. Um, I, I want to just pause real quick and I, and I literally just want to thank everybody independently. Um, Brett has had a little bit of communication issues. I believe his Wi-Fi network is, is a touch slow, so he's been a little bit delayed from here or there. Brett, I want to thank you extremely for your patience in putting up with your connectivity issues and for coming out to the shows. You are a valued Podnutsian. Uh, Chad, your knowledge is uncomparable. I really do thank you for coming out and for sharing during the week in the uh, Boxer chat. Uh Aaron, uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming out. I'm sorry that your phone died. Uh, um, um, Jonas, because of the time difference, I know nothing is easy for you to come out, so I want to thank you. L- Liam, you're the man. Um, you're one of the longest-running people on the Podnuts network, so I thank you for coming out. Uh, uh, Richard, he is extremely busy right now, I know. Every Saturday morning, you know, eight, eight hours or less than after we start this show, he has to get up early and do a lot of work for the show. And, um, I definitely want to thank, um, James for coming out. Um, James, your knowledge, I can tell you right now, I don't, I, I've listened to many maker type related shows and your experience seems to be second to none. So I, I definitely want to thank all you guys for your time, for coming out to this show, for uh, helping everybody else learn all the basics on 3D printing, m- making, how these systems interact and what kind of things to use and what kind of tools to use. Uh, did any, anyone want to end off with any uh, inspiring comments or any links to uh content that they thought were awesome no links i just wanted to say you know fiber will help with uh, your consistency on putting out uh the podcast i'm just saying that make it a more regular show (laughs) that's right exactly and i just want to say james uh hopefully you can uh come back to the show you uh have a lot of knowledge and uh speak about it very well well, I'm going to have to come back next week and let you guys know how the PDA worked out. Um, I actually got two identical printers in the makerspace. I'm thinking of running one with glue stick like we usually do, one with PVA and just seeing seeing how they go. But I'll let you guys know how that goes. Very cool, very cool. I, I'd like to thank Dor for putting this together and wrangling Shut and all the up. post-production crap you have to deal with. All hail Dor. No, man. I'm glad I don't have to edit it. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) that's right. That's right. It's like thanking somebody for joining the army or the Marines or the air force or Navy. You, you already know what you're signing up for. So it's a given. So it, it, it just happens. Take it for granted because everybody else does. I have fun doing this and any work that comes out of it. I more than willingly accept because that's just who I am. And it, also takes my mind away from depression and family issues and money issues. So that's a good thing as well. Uh, if you want to download more, just go to podnuts.com. If you want to contact us, you can just send us an email at the makers at We also have uh, services on um, uh, 
Instagram, and we are on MeWe, which is a social network that tries to promise to be much more private, not sell your information, no ads. So that is a uh, quote-unquote safe space if you want to hook up with us. Uh, we also have a Mattermost server, which is a private IRC-like chat server. If you want access to that, just shoot me an email at mail at podnuts.com, and I will be happy to send you an invite to your email a- address. And with that, uh, I will talk to all of you uh, and publish another show in hopefully about a week. Take it easy, guys. Aloha.